Letter 4 of Letters from Hell This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marie Christian Letters from Hell by Valdemar Adolf Thisted Translated by L.W.J.S. Letter 4 The circumstances in which I grew up in the world could not be called happy. My parents were so unlike in character, and so little suited to each other, that people were fully justified in wondering how they could have married at all. My father was a plain, homely man, somewhat retiring and unassuming. He was the head of a well-to-do house of business of considerable mercantile importance. But he was not at first sight credited with personal weight or influence. People would easily slight him. And yet, there was that in the quiet expression of his face, in the calm clearness of his eye, which convinced those who took the trouble of knowing him that he was not a man of the ordinary type. My mother, whom I always considered the chief person in the house, was a woman of rare perfections, very handsome, very gracious, and highly esteemed. Age even flattered her, dealing kindly by her beauty. But that, perhaps, was due to the fact that her life never flowed in the channels of violent passion. Some believed her cold and wanting in feeling, but it would be a great mistake to imagine her without the warmth of energy. She was a clever woman, and although she never asserted herself so as to give offense, she always managed to have her way. Who, indeed, could have dreamt to turn her will aside, since I, her idol and her darling, never once succeeded in going against it. She was a remarkably clever woman. The world admired her. Whether she was loved, I cannot say. Maybe she loved no one excepting myself. Did I love her? Well, if I must answer the question honestly, I am bound to say I also rather admired than loved her. And indeed, she was worthy of all admiration. Never anywhere did I meet a woman who was so thoroughly what the world calls a lady. Mind you, I mean a lady in the world's own acceptation. She was just perfect, perfect in beauty, in manner, in bearing, in dress, in all the ways of life prescribed by society. Perfect, too, in the fulfillment of what she considered her duty. Irreproachable in conduct, a very pattern of piety, appearing clothed in spotlessness as with a garment, never saying or doing or permitting anything that might breathe suspicion on her perfection. In short, she was a lady to the least movement of her finger, to the minutest folds of her dress, and she preserved her reputation, even adding to it daily. Looking back now, I understand her, as indeed I understand the whole of the sad past with a new insight. I see plainly now that to her the world was everything. It was her guide, its approval being the aim of her every ambition. I do not mean to say by this that she cared not for things good and beautiful in any other light, and she really cultivated religion. No one could appear more assiduously obedient to the behest of piety than my mother with her veneration for the clergy, her regular attendance at church, and no one ever quitted her presence without feeling edified. 
Not undeservedly might duty and propriety be termed the guardian saints that watched her every step. The stately mansion we inhabited was divided in two, figuratively speaking, my mother presiding in one way, my father, though quietly, in another. I, their child, seemed to belong altogether to my mother's dominion. I shrank from my father, feeling afraid of his quiet eye. Apparently he was satisfied with this state of affairs, but I feel sure now that in his heart he loved me. My mother's rule was marked by gaiety. She loved to live in style. My father excused by business, but rarely took part in her doings. And if he made his appearance at times, I, foolish child, felt almost ashamed of his presence. He looked so little like the master of the house in the simplicity of his habits and unpretending ways. There was another inmate of our house, my father's sister, strangely contrasting with my mother. The world had begun to call her an old maid, and she certainly was peculiar, a mixture of unfashionableness and singularity. People called her eccentric, whimsical, and indeed one never knew what she might not be doing next. She was no lady like my mother, and nowise perfect, though she could look remarkably ladylike whenever she thought it worth her while. She was extremely natural, her heart always bubbling over with its inmost thoughts. There was something utterly naive in her straightforward openness and the unstudied ways of her conversation. My mother, I believe, thought her queer, but in truth, she was the only person who ever knew how to call up a smile in my father's face, and this she looked upon as her own special vocation, ever mindful of it. No, Aunt Betty could nowise be held up as a pattern, and as for perfections, she had but one, a heart brimful of kindness, ever ready to sacrifice itself, making it her one delight to see others happy. In fact, she never thought of herself. And that heart of hers was filled with a faith as deep and fervent and single-minded as any child's. No doubt her Christian life knew its times of dearth as of plenty. It could not be otherwise with a nature like hers. But her heart, nevertheless, was firmly grounded. She had God in her heart. And though she might get entangled with her duties and even blunder about God's commandments, the one commandment, fulfilling the law, ever shone as a beacon to her soul that, loving God, we should love one another. She had hardly ever been separated from my father, and now she seemed indispensable in his house, that great two-parted house. If I were to call her our Cinderella, it would most certainly be an ill-chosen comparison, and yet a true one. She was queen of the household, but in that position she managed to be the servant of all. Every trouble, every care, she took upon her shoulders, wearing herself out for each and all of us. She liked it. Any attempt to oppose her in this respect roused her self-assertion, meek and mild though she was in aught beside. My mother, being the lady, never touched domestic concerns with a finger. Everything was given up to Aunt Betty, even the care for myself and my father. But household worries were the least of her vicarious burden. 
she felt called to take upon herself whatever was disagreeable to anyone else, making herself a shield and warder off in every possible direction, and being the willing scapegoat even, if thereby she could comfort blundering servant or careless child. She appeared to consider this her life's calling. She who, despite her simplicity, was by far the wisest of us, and indefatigable were her attempts to cover the want of harmony between my parents. She might in truth be called the bond of union between them. It was evidently my father for whom she thus sacrificed herself, loving him with a sisterly devotion as beautiful as rare. How well she understood how to brighten his home, to turn aside the edge of disappointment, and flood the place with her own abundant warmth. Was he sad? How she would cheer him, and with a show of gaiety, hiding perhaps her own aching heart, strive to heal the breach that separated him from his wife, and, alas, from his child as well. And how lovingly she did her very best for me, the sweetest, kindest of aunts. My mother indulged me fondly. I ought not to say that she spoiled me. Her cleverness stood in the way of that. But I owe it to my aunt that, in spite of all indulgence, I was a good and even pious child. It was she who taught me to read my Bible, sowing the good seed in my heart, and nothing in after life ever did more for me than her loving and God-fearing example. The recollection of that early time is unspeakably sweet to me even now in the bitterness of hell. With what power of love she drew me is plainly evident from the fact that whenever I could I stole away from the queenly presence of my mother, though there was never a plaything I wished for but she gave it to me. To seek Aunt Betty, trotting behind her to the kitchen and storeroom, or spending hours in the one little chamber she called her own. That was the happiest time of my life. Thanks to Aunt Betty, then, I was brought up in the fear of God. But though the seed was sown, and the flower even blossomed, it never yielded fruit. As I grew up, the power of the sensual was upon me, and I early conformed to the ways of the world. Aunt Betty died. She had positively worn herself to death. At such cost the service of love at times is given. Her loss moved me deeply. But the impression did not last. I had begun to attend at my father's counting-house. My mother had destined me for the army, or, if possible, to some diplomatic career. I was gifted with my mother's beauty, was heir to my father's fortune, and not wanting in ability. She took pride in me, and naturally wished I should be a credit to her in the eyes of the world. But although apart from Aunt Betty I had always been left to my mother's guidance, my father strenuously opposed her wishes in this respect. I should follow in his footsteps and carry on the time-honored firm. Life, he said, would yield its own battles apart from the army. He was right, but a sorry soldier I proved. I was gifted with the pleasant but dangerous talent of making friends wherever I went a pernicious talent even, with a disposition like mine. Not only did the world open her arms to receive me, but to clasp me, as the fair nymphs of the well clasped Hylas, the beautiful youth, dragging him helplessly to the deep. 
Even before my lips wore the first downy sign of manhood, I was already corrupted. Of misleading companions there was no lack, those of my own sex not being the worst. Such things, however, avenge themselves. Being misled at first, I began to mislead. But being brought under my father's immediate influence, he did his utmost to lift me from the slough, sparing neither admonition nor rebuke nor even restraint. It availed not. I evaded his guidance and even deceived him. More successful were my mother's attempts, for while on the one hand she managed to let me see that she could condone, if not actually excuse, she yet so powerfully pleaded the claims of prudence and position that I promised to mend my ways. And I did mend them. I carefully considered the extreme of dissipation, avoiding discovery and scandal. Self-restraint was not without effort, for my nature thirsted after pleasure. But though passion ruled, I had a strong will to act as a curb where I chose, and the worldly wisdom of my mother taught me the advisability of exerting that will. I was about one and twenty when my father died. Never since we lost Aunt Betty can I remember having seen a smile on his face. There was no one to call it up when she had gone. And now he left us. My mother retired on her jointure, satisfied, as she said, to have done her duty in the world. And I, at an early age, was admitted to a partnership in the firm, of which my father's brother now was head. Soon after, I fell seriously ill. This brings me to one of the darkest episodes of my life. It is but an episode, a draft of passing enjoyment, but fraught with the origin of my deepest woe. Could I be washed of all my sin, this one dark recollection would never leave me. The illness happily had been got over, leaving me prostrate. It was early in the spring. My medical attendant advised me to leave town as soon as possible for the country or the seaside. But I was a prey to ill humor and fretfulness. I liked the advice and did not like it. I did not care for our own place in the country. It was not quiet enough, I said, and I hated the sea. As it chanced, a sudden whim came to the rescue. We had been to the lakes the previous autumn. Memory carried me back to a keeper's lodge, delightfully situated in a leafy solitude, a very bower of clematis and roses. Peace herself could not dream of a more congenial retreat. If I was to go for change of air, that was the place I should fancy. Difficulties were got over, and I went. An honest old keeper lived there with his daughter, Annie, she being on the verge of womanhood. Annie, how little did I think that this name one day would sound so terrible to my ears. I recovered quickly, and strength returned. But lovely as the spot was, life without incident did not amuse me. From sheer ennui, I began to make love to Annie. She was an inexperienced country girl, but the very naivety of her ignorance was enchanting. She was as free and natural as the birds of the dell, a very outcome of her surroundings, fresh as the dewy morn and fragrant as the woodland air. Wild and untaught, yet sweetly delicate, that child of nature soon cast a spell over my fancy. 
We were left alone fearlessly. Her father saw but a child in her. She was barely seventeen, and she was engaged to wait on me. But Annie, at first, was proof to flattery. Light-footed and light-hearted, she turned its edge unconsciously, and I made no way with her. Always merry and always happy, full of kindliness and grace, she flitted about me, helpful as an angel, but coy and unapproachable. Not that she saw danger. She did not even suspect it. It was merely the instinctive dread holding all children of nature aloof from snares. The bird on the sunny bough will look at you, even sing to you, but you shall not touch it. Brimming with life's enjoyment, she was easily delighted and sprightly as a squirrel in the wood. She knew affection, but what we call love had at that time not entered her consciousness. Never had I seen a happier mind, a fresher and more charming disposition. The sky of her soul was as clear as the blue vault above, her singing as blithe as the larks on the wing, and she cared not whether the sun shone or not. But in my selfish soul I said, Thou coy little bird, see if I don't catch thee. Not that I loved her, the difference of rank was too great, but I was for plucking the flower, though I should throw it away after a while. And I did succeed, working a pitiful change in the child. She was like a faded blossom or a bird with broken wing. Her singing and laughter were silenced, the fearlessness of innocence was gone. Sadly and silently she moved about, scarcely lifting her tearful eye. But from that moment she clung to me with tender resignation, as touching as it was true, to me who had ruined her in idle sport. She felt, and felt rightly, that henceforth her life was mine, and in her own way loved me, wronged as she was. It was I who had murdered her soul. Even then repentance with poignant sting had seized upon my heart. There was some good left in me as yet. I felt deeply touched, moreover, by the child's entire love and humble surrender. Was she bewitching before she was not less so now? Not to be known again, but lovely still in sorrow. Free and fearless she had been in the pride of her beauty. Now with chaplet deflowered and robbed of her glory, ruefully kissing the hand which brought her so low. I began to love her, or to believe I loved her, and thought of a possible marriage. But it fell out differently. My mother had been informed and set herself to bring me to reason. How cleverly she did it! Not rousing opposition, but nonetheless effectively showing me the utter foolishness of my intention. There was not a shade of derision in her manner, yet I felt ridiculed. She never called it a silly freak, but she brought me to view it as much. Had I really loved Annie, no doubt my mother could not so easily have influenced me. As it was, I suddenly seemed to come to my senses. It was not love, only pity for the girl. My mother spoke about it freely, and presently she succeeded in directing my attention elsewhere. She had adopted an orphan child of American parentage distantly related to her own family. Lily might be about nine or ten years old now, and so far I had scarcely bestowed any notice upon her. 
My mother would hint now and then at the rare flower of beauty slumbering in the buds of promise. And presently, in so many words, she pointed out to me that in some seven or eight years Lily might not only have ripened to matchless charms, but as an heiress of no ordinary kind could not fail to draw the eyes of men. If, then, I would give up Annie and think of Lily instead, she would try to keep her for me. When Lily should have reached maturity, it would be just about the right time for me to settle in life, and I might hunt the world over and not find her equal anywhere. That was true enough, and imagination had been set to work. Since that time I loved to think of the promising little Creole. Lily was undeniably a lovely creature, as harmless as a dove, but with me anticipating fancy, reveled in possession. It was easy for my mother, therefore, to win me to her plan. There was something indescribably charming in this new relationship. To look upon Lily as my own property, though she knew it not. To watch her unfolding charm upon charm in sweetest innocence. To call her mine, mine in the very care that guarded her. To gather up treasure, as it were, for my own delightful harvest. Call it unnatural if you like, but to a nature like mine, it was irresistibly tempting. I allowed my mother full liberty to bring the affair with Annie to a satisfactory end, as she termed it, having given her my word not to see the girl again. A real sacrifice, was it not? Hell shows it now, in its own true light. End of Letter 4 Thank you for listening, and if you like this, please subscribe and consider liking my Facebook page and joining my group, Jesus Answers Prayer. May God bless your day. Hola, somos Mark y Pearl Lambert, y somos los ministros de Jesús Responde las Oraciones. Si le gusta este ministerio, por favor ayúdenos a apoyarlo. El enlace para donar se encuentra en la descripción a continuación. Gracias y Dios te bendiga.